Good evening and welcome to Monday night of week four of Rare Book School. Week four is green this year. Week one was red. Week two was orange. Week three was yellow. If there had been a week five, it would have been blue. It's a pleasure to see you all here and to welcome our speaker, who is Kevin Graffinino from the Wisconsin Historical Society. Kevin Graffinino. Thank you. I'm not sure I understand the significance of the colors, but as someone who's from originally from Vermont, the Green Mountain State, I'll take green as my color of the week here. As I'm sure everyone in this room knows, in June, on June 10, 1815, in a letter to John Adams, Thomas Jefferson wrote, I cannot live without books. And I find that five-word statement by the man who's personal library became the foundation of the Library of Congress as a marvelous expression of a feeling that I think has captured the hearts and minds of bookish individuals from Socrates to Swift to Styron. Whether they think of themselves as bibliophiles, avid readers, bibliophiles, a term my wife thinks applies especially well to me, bookworms, bibliomaniacs, book collectors, or Tom Robb's new term, biblioholics, it seems that men and women all over the world have been falling under the spell of books for more than 2,000 years. For most of us, the condition is basically a gentle hobby. Um, you, have, you read frequently. You have hundreds of books around the house. I think of Samuel Pepys saying, I know not how to abstain from reading. For others, it's a serious but still pleasant drain on our time, space, energy, and funds. Vincent Sterrett, when we are collecting books, we are collecting happiness. And for some of us, it becomes an absolute obsession in which the need to own, hold, read, and immerse oneself in books becomes just basically an irresistible passion. Uh, Logan Pearsall Smith. People say that life is the thing, but I prefer reading. And even today, as we seem to be hurtling towards what some sadists describe as an all-electronic future of CD-ROMs, interactive video, distance learning, and the Internet, the traditional format of printed words on paper bound between two covers still seems to be retaining a remarkable power to attract, fascinate, and satisfy large portions of the population. As with most human passions, there seems to be a strong disagreement over whether book lovers are born or made. For my part, I can only say that I can't remember a time when I wasn't a bibliophile. I grew up surrounded by books in Montpelier, Vermont, 1960s. Our house probably had somewhere in the range of 1,000 books in it, certainly in the 60s, probably now as well, considerably more than the average household in this country has. My family's library was pretty much an eclectic mishmash of titles. Uh, Thirty years later, I can remember concentrations in European and American history, dozens of beautifully printed limited editions club books from the 1930s and 40s. Impressive but impenetrable to a, to a young reader. Um, modern library series titles. Oh, an assortment of economics, literature, biography, philosophy. I can't recall, looking back over three decades, any books for children. Apparently my family decided that if you were going to read, you were going to be an adult reader at the age of five or six. And, so as a result, what I do recall is 10, 11 years old, um, 
reading books I didn't really understand. Uh, Near complete run of American heritage sticks in my mind from the 1950s on. I remember very well doing most of my term papers by cribbing from the tissue-thin pages of the 11th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, which basically meant that in the 1960s I was regurgitating information from the 19-teens. Some of my teachers caught the fact that I wasn't quite up to date on the latest information. The absence of television, since to my recollection we were the only family I can recall in Montpelier that didn't own a television. Um, probably had a lot to do with the fact that I loved reading. But I don't recall then having a real sense of deprivation because I had to substitute reading for The Man from Uncle or Bonanza or My Three Sons. By far the most enjoyable and exciting books that I can recall from those, those childhood days were the remnants of a library that we had somehow acquired in Montpelier of the library of a fellow named Benjamin D. Silliman who was a 19th century New York City attorney, uh, quite well-to-do and quite an avid Victorian gentleman reader. Um, among the Silliman books that had traveled north from Long Island, his summer estate, to, uh, to our house in Vermont, were long 18th century runs of the Gentleman's Magazine, early editions of World Explorations, 19th century natural history titles, odd volumes from broken sets of the classics, signed presentation copies of travel narratives by authors long since forgotten like George Koschel, and other examples of the, of the reading tastes of a Victorian um, person who had both the time, the leisure, and the money to, uh, to indulge his tastes in reading. Silliman read and annotated his books, and I still have copies of titles of his in which he recounts meetings with Washington Irving, uh, David Hosack, the physician who attended Aaron Burr, or attended Alexander Hamilton, and then went and told Burr that Hamilton was dying. Um, that sort of thing. I don't recall learning much from poring over Silliman's books, but what I do remember very strongly is just the sense of awe and excitement about having old books in my hands and uh, being around them. And it certainly didn't occur to me at the time, but it must have to any adult who was watching me, that I was basically a bookworm in the making. Once it began, which I recall as being about nine or ten years old, my bibliophilic um, evolution, if you like, proceeded by fits and starts. At first, I alternated it with uh, wild dreams about greatness in baseball, football, and basketball, um, with time out for Olympic greatness in track, swimming, uh, anything else that I was competing in. It was good that I had something to fall back on other than those athletic dreams, since I had virtually no athletic talent. And I quickly found that the bookish interests I had were going to be a little more satisfying and certainly a little bit more productive for me. At school, I basically found that social studies, English, and history were the subjects that I could breeze through with a love of reading, and the mathematics, the sciences, and those sort of hard things I'd best uh, stay away from. I. The highlight, certainly, of my time in Montpelier as a, as a student was eighth grade, we got reading uh, speed tests, and somehow I got up to 3,500 words a minute in a test that Mr. Benton gave our class. I never had enough character to tell Mr. Benton that the real reason was because he gave me an excerpt from a book I had already read. And I hope he never finds this out. Sometime in junior high school, that love of reading took a definite antiquarian turn. I had gotten some of the bug from the Silliman books at home, 
But what really turned the tide for me was picking up and reading Van Allen Bradley's Gold in Your Attic. And anyone my age or older remembers that from the 1960s as one of those very popular books about the collecting of antiquarian materials. Uh, Reading Bradley took me out of coin collecting as a teenage hobby and turned me into a book scout absolutely certain that I was going to find an edition of Eliot's Indian Bible or a first edition of Poe's Tamerlane because Bradley had said it was possible. So certainly it was going to happen to me. I was, I was quite sure of this as a, as a teenager. I followed that up with liberal doses of the writings of folks like A.E. Newton, William Dana Orcutt, A.S.W. Rosenbach, the, the popular writers of the 20s, 30s, and 40s about how wonderful old books were. Basically, giving that, that dream of, of finding something valuable a little more staying power than most of my childhood ambitions. And somehow at age 17, I started a little rare book, well, used book business called J.K. Graffinino Books. I gave it a, what I thought was an impressive-sounding title in the hopes that basically I could cover the fact that I had no experience, very little knowledge, no stock, and no capital. I don't, in looking back, think I fooled a lot of people, but most of the book collectors I met were nice enough not to make a lot of the fact that I was basically, uh, what is it, all hat and no cattle in Texas. Um, And after a few months of of trying to buy and sell everything old and getting nowhere, I somehow settled on Vermontiana, uh, books about Vermont, as, uh, as a specialty. And that worked reasonably well. It was a finite field, the books weren't too expensive, and the collectors were local. So that worked reasonably well. Eventually, the business produced enough income to pay my way through college, which was nice, but probably in reality I would have made more money delivering pizzas, mowing lawns. But I had a cramped apartment full of dusty old books. I knew how to identify a first edition of the Green Mountain Boys. And how many of my contemporaries could have, could have boasted of that? And I certainly did a fair amount of boasting about it. J.K. Graffinino books lasted for five years. I gave it up very reluctantly when, they, when the University of Vermont Library offered me a job in special collections and gently explained to me that being an active antiquarian book dealer while working in special collections might be something of a conflict of interest. This was a terrible shock to me. And in the two decades since, although I would certainly still like to be a dealer, auctioneer, slash whatever else, uh, I've spent most of my adult life working in libraries, in rare book collections, in uh, the special collections end of library work. If you want to count the teenage years as an antiquarian dealer, since I'm 41 now, I've spent more than half of my life being an old book scout or an antiquarian bookman. Like William Targ, whose works I would certainly recommend to you if you like to read books about books, when the time comes, I'm going to be reasonably well satisfied with the one-word epitaph, Bookman. Having reached an age at which conventional wisdom says that I should have midlife crises and realization that greatness is a bit out of reach, thus making me ponder roads not taken, so far I haven't had too many qualms about having wandered into this bookish, uh, bookish obsession. If there was something else calling, I didn't hear it, I guess. And I would basically say that born or bred, whether it's innate or whether you learn it, I'm pretty much a bookman to the bone. I don't think I'd hear it in this room, but some of the audiences I've given this talk to, I know there have been people sitting out there thinking, very nice, but boy, talk about a career with no future, because books are dying. There's no future for books. Um, Computer is king. Books will be forgotten soon if they're not already. 
In a few years, we will all be surfing the net. We'll be manipulating wireless mice, uh, downloading digitized text, and cruising the information superhighway. Complete works of Dickens, after all, are already available on CD-ROM. How long can it be before only a few fossilized bibliophiles are going to be playing with books made out of paper? In another generation or so, according to this thinking, books will be as anachronistic as slide rules, replaced by better, faster, and uh, more accessible electronic formats. Librarians are now information retrieval scientists. Whether little Johnny is computer literate is more important to his parents than whether or not he reads books. And Microsoft and Bill Gates are going to lead us to a better future. Um, according to this, this philosophy, basically, books had a long run at the top, but time to move on to something else. That's nice, but I don't buy it. Um, I hope nobody else in this room buys it. Computers are revolutionizing many, if not most, aspects of our lives. I use them every day personally. It's been at least a decade since I wrote anything longer than a paragraph on anything but a computer. I certainly rely on email as a way to communicate. I know the advantages that an electronic catalog for libraries has over a card catalog. And in short, I'm willing, happy, able to welcome computers into any aspect of my life that allows me to find them more useful than the other tools at my disposal. But I would argue vehemently that the love of books isn't about tools. It's not about information retrieval. I'll use an, a computerized encyclopedia because if I just need information, it may be the fastest way for me to find it. And a lot of retrieving information is drudgery. But I don't think most people care about whether or not A Tale of Two Cities is available on CD-ROM. When I made this comment in Wisconsin, one of my reading-challenged colleagues grumbled, or in any other format for my money. She still remembered having to read it in high school. And I don't think you want it on CD-ROM unless basically you're trying to do something like count the number of times Jerry Cruncher appears in the text. If you want to read Dickens' novel, the best way to do it is still take a paper copy of it to your favorite chair and sit down and exercise your imagination from it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, to it is a far better thing I do than I have ever done. In compiling this collection that I've, I've got together here, it certainly seems to me that dire predictions about the end of books and the end of reading have been with us for well over a century now. Frankly, I think that having withstood radio, movies, and television, books have a future in the computer age as well. Nearly 40 years ago, Lawrence Clark Powell, who was then, I think, dean of libraries at UCLA, another man whose books I would certainly recommend to you if you like books about books, wrote in a book he called A Passion for Books, quote, I believe that books, those beautiful blends of form and spirit, have a future fully as glorious as their past, end quote. Now, I'm with Powell on that one, certainly. And like him, I'm certain that, quote, I am not alone in my belief, my faith, my love, end quote. The bookstores I visit, having just dropped quite a bit of money in the Charlottesville ones, um, are always busy, bustling places. Everywhere I go, I see people continuing to read just for pleasure. The historical libraries I frequent for my own research are always full. In short, the love of old and new books alike certainly still seems to be animating a great percentage of this population. I don't claim to be able to, 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 be able to explain why reading has an allure, why there's an appeal to a signed first edition, 
why a Civil War soldier's letter in its original envelope has a magic for large numbers of us, but I know that those things exist. There are certainly enough avid bibliophiles left among us for whom reading is a constant, irresistible fact of life that I'm not terribly worried that computer will become the next-to-last word in I'm going to curl up with a good book tonight. There are barbarians at the gate. There always have been. Poor fellows, unfortunate wretches who fail to see the light. But they've always been there. Throughout uh, the last century at least, they've been predicting bad things about books. And to deal with them, again, this is taking a, a quote from Lawrence Clark Powell, I call on book lovers everywhere to close ranks, face the invaders, and give them the works, preferably an elephant folio. This little project that I've finally come to an end on of, of compiling books about quotes about books and reading and the love of reading into a published collection began more than 20 years ago. I started it when I was a teenager, basically. Kept at it more or less ever since. The first two quotations that I can recall writing down, usually taping them to my old uh, Remington typewriter as, as inspiration, were Erasmus' familiar reflection on buying books instead of uh, food or paying the rent, and Thomas Sheraton's quatrain about uh, the fact that time spent with books is preferable to time with earls and dukes. For about 20 years, this little quote hunting was, was, an, was a hobby, an occasional pastime, uh, gathering possibilities from my own readings, um, submissions from friends and colleagues who knew that I was filling shoeboxes with these things, looking through Bartlett's other standard quotation books, that sort of thing. At first, I concentrated almost entirely on antiquarian books, quotations about how wonderful they were, but in time sort of widened the horizons to libraries, reading, book design and production, history, biography, uh, significance of printing, that sort of thing. What really kicked it into gear for me was that about 15 months ago, I moved from the University of Vermont Special Collections Department to a purely administrative job as library director at the State Historical Society of Wisconsin. And once I did that, I realized that if I ever hoped to see a book again, I'd better find something to do besides shuffle 20th century paper around my large desk in Wisconsin. So I basically picked up the book, collect, the book quote collecting pace as a way of ensuring that sinking to the level of full-time administrator wouldn't mean that I'd never see a book again. That's worked reasonably well for 15 months, but now that the book is almost out, I'm getting awfully worried about needing some other project so that I don't just become the library administrator. The arrangement of this little volume, which is much smaller than it looks with uh, Xeroxed only on the front side of pages, is alphabetical by author, which I found a lot more interesting than trying to arrange the quotes topically. Readers who do wind up dipping into it will find that there is a, a nice variety of subjects. Some of the larger ones are hundreds of quotations about the joys of reading, from Leo Alatius, quote, to me, the light of the sun, the day, and life itself would be joyless and bitter if I had not something to read, end quote, to Eudora Welty, quote, I learned from the age of two or three that any room in our house at any time of day was there to read in or to be read to. Most of them correctly extol reading as the purpose of life. If I couldn't read, I couldn't live. Thelma Green. Another nice block of quotes is on the travails of authorship, how hard writers have it in life. Uh, writers detailing the burdens of their profession. 
Red Smith, uh, New York Times sports uh, columnist. There's nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at the typewriter and open a vein. I also was surprised to find a lot on the evil. Do we have any publishers and editors in this room? Oh, darn. A most evil crew, according to my, my authors. Thomas Campbell, early 19th century British writer. Now, Barabbas was a publisher. And book reviewers, Goethe, beat him to death, the dog. He's a reviewer. I have a flip side to that in this collection. It turns up a little bit less frequently, though, in editors and publishers turning to, and looking at writers. Uh, William Targ. Many authors should be shunned socially. Some are almost not human. My favorite in this kind of category are ones in which authors are looking at each other and disp making disparaging comments about their, uh, uh, their contemporaries and their predecessors. Because my college degree has turned out to be in history, and because, like Samuel Johnson, I'm inclined towards biography, I found a lot of quotes, as it turned out in my readings, from those two categories. Like Bertrand Russell, I've put off writing my own autobiography for fear that something important might not yet have happened. Russell was worried that he might be elected president of Mexico, as I recall, and wanted to wait until that happened before he wrote his autobiography. But I'm intrigued by what so many fellow biographers and his historians have had to say about those, those related crafts, and mostly by how unfavorably the rest of the world perceives those of us who practice them. If you're to believe the authors before you in this collection, biography and history consist mostly of lies, half-truths, and indifferent prose. It's bad enough for me that Ambrose Bierce defines history as, quote, an account mostly false, of events mostly unimportant, which are brought about by rulers mostly knaves and soldiers mostly fools, end quote. At least there he's blaming mostly the folks who made history. It's a little harder to put a good face on Samuel Johnson, who wrote, great abilities are not requisite for an historian, for in historical composition all the greatest powers of the human mind are quiescent. Must let much less George Bernard Shaw writing, quote, History, sir, will tell lies, as usual, end quote. So I'm thankful that there are, there are good book people like Oscar Wilde, who was one of my favorite sources in this collection, who reminds us, quote, anyone can make history, but only a great man can write it. But while history is where my personal research and my personal reading interests lie, I've drawn my paycheck, basically, from two decades of working in libraries. So I've succumbed to the impulse to sprinkle hundreds of, of quotes about libraries and librarians throughout the collection. I applaud the discernment of Augustine Burrell, who wrote, A great library easily begets affection, which may deepen into love. And I would gladly pay to have the wise observations of Charles Kendall Adams, who wrote, in every university of character, the library is regarded as of fundamental importance, end quote. And Shelby Foote, who wrote, a university is just a group of buildings gathered around a library, end quote. I'd like to have those engraved on Gothic, in Gothic letters on the granite foreheads of college and university administrators nationwide, because I find far too many of them have no appreciation for libraries. If I have any money left over after that process, I will spring for tattoos from Virginia's Waller Barrett. Quote, if the heart of the, if the library is the heart of the university, the rare book area is the heart of the library, end quote. And 
again, UVA's Fredson Bowers, quote, that 500 may busy themselves in the general collection for the one who reads in the rare book room means little when quality, not quantity, is the criterion, end quote. I'd pay for those tattoos for all academic librarians who think of themselves as informational media specialists and who dream of abolishing their special collections departments, supplanting them all with Xerox copies of the originals. But in the end, my favorite category in this collection comes back to that dual love of quotations that link the joy of reading with the joy of antiquarian books, the things that Benjamin D. Silliman's books and Gold in Your Attic awakened me to 30 years ago. My bibliomania has not advanced quite as far as Eugene Field, who wrote, if I know one thing better than I know another, I know this, that my books know me and love me. I'm not quite that far gone. But still I do know how Jefferson felt about not being able to live without books, and I certainly agree with Theodore C. Blagan, who wrote, the human impulse to collect reaches one of its highest levels in the domain of books. Like English poet Robert Southey, quote, I am frankly a little mad about books, end quote. And I've gotten long past caring about who knows it. It used to bother me that folks would say, oh, geez, bookworm, when I was in my 20s. Now that I'm in my 40s, it's a done deal. There's nothing much I can do about it. And certainly membership in a group that includes people like uh, Richard DeBury, A.S.W. Rosenbach, A.E. Newton, Vincent Starrett, Lawrence Clark Powell, William Targ, suits me pretty well by now. After all, as Robert Williamson, an English bookseller, wrote nearly a century ago, in all ages, the greatest, best, and most lovable men have been lovers of books. Now, with a little gender inclusiveness, I think that still holds true. So whether the volumes in in question are old or new, it's enough for me that my friends and associates demonstrate a profound belief in one of Newton's great truths, which uh, this is A.E. Newton, uh, not Isaac. Quote, the buying of more books than one can read is nothing less than the soul reaching towards infinity. And this passion is the only thing that raises us above the beasts that perish. End quote. I hope that anyone who finds that true and who understands that truth would find some interest in a, in a collection like this. I brought in some of the, the quotes. I will read a few of them to you. Um, basically in an ascending list of importance in terms of the categories. First category is just simply reading. Stuart Brent, who wrote a wonderful book about bookselling called The Seven Stairs, which I would recommend to you, about his 30 years of bookselling in Chicago, starting right after the Second World War. Quote, when I began to read, I fell in love with such consuming passion that I became a threat to everyone who knew me. Whatever I was reading, I became. I was the character, Hamlet or Lear. I was the author, Shelley or Stendhal. When I was seized by sudden quirks, jerks, and strange gestures, it was not because I was a nervous child. I was being some character. S.I. Hayakawa, 20th century. In a very real sense, people who read good literature have lived more than people who cannot or will not read. It is not true that we have only one life to live. If we can read, we can live as many more lives and as many kinds of lives as we wish. I'm personally partial to the, to the more humorous quotes. I like the ones that know that reading is the reason for existence, but Oscar Levant, I've given up reading books. I find it takes my mind off myself. Along the same lines, H.L. Mencken, who with Shaw 
Samuel Clemens and Oscar Wilde would be my four favorite authors in this collection. The chief knowledge that a man gets from reading books is the knowledge that very few of them are worth reading. Gore Vidal, having been an English major in, in college, I'm sympathetic to this, quote, I never went to college, but I have lectured on campuses for a quarter century, and it is my impression that after taking a course in the novel, it is an unusual student who would ever want to read one again. <laughs> Evelyn Waugh. Lady Peabury was in the morning room reading a novel. Early training gave a guilty spice to this recreation, for she had been brought up to, to believe that to read a novel before luncheon was one of the gravest sins it was possible for a gentlewoman to commit. Next category is writers and writing. W.H. Auden. If in, in our age, if a boy or girl is untalented, the odds are in favor of their thinking they want to write. Walter Baget, uh, 19th century English writer. The reason why so few good books are written is that so few people that can write know anything. Samuel Clemens. There are three infallible ways of pleasing an author, and the three form a rising scale of compliment. One, to tell him you have read one of his books. Two, to tell him you have read all of his books. Three, to ask him to let you read the manuscript of his forthcoming book. Number one, admits you to his respect. Number two, admits you to his admiration. Number three, carries you clear into his heart. Cyril Connolly. This is uh, certainly, as, as an author, I, I would go wholeheartedly for this. I should like to see the custom introduced of readers who are pleased with a book sending the author some small cash token. Anything between half a crown and a hundred pounds. Not more than a hundred pounds. That would be bad for my character. Not less than half a crown. That would do no good to yours. Charles Dickens from Oliver Twist. How should you like to grow up and be a clever man and write books? Oliver considered a little while. Well, well, said the old gentleman, don't be afraid. We won't make an author of you while there is an honest trade to be learned or brick-making to turn to. Edna Ferber. There is no denying the fact that writers should be seen but not heard. Rarely are they a winsome sight. Colson Kernahan. Certainly something that, that we need to remember. There are two literary maladies, writer's cramp and swelled head. The worst of writer's cramp is that it is never cured. The worst of swelled head is that it never kills. This is one my wife found for me. She sort of disapproves of my using it, but she found it. So, Gypsy Rose Lee. Royalties are nice and all that, but shaking the beads brings in money quicker. Stanley Unwin, who was a noted publisher in the 20th century. Another illusion, seldom entertained by competent authors, is that the publishers, readers, and others are waiting to plagiarize their work. I think it may be said that the more worthless the manuscript, the greater the fear of plagiarism. Next category is critics and reviewers, with comments on other writers thrown in as well. Richard Armour. As a Harvard graduate and an editor for the Atlantic Monthly, it must have been difficult for James Russell Lowell to write like an illiterate oaf, but he succeeded. 
Robert Bolt. Lord Byron writes like a housewife on the verge of the vapors, which I would agree with. This one I don't agree with, Samuel Clemens. A very good library could be started by leaving Jane Austen out. This one I'm a little nervous about reading here in Virginia. James Russell Lowell. There comes Poe with his raven, like Barnaby Rudge. Three-fifths of him genius and two-fifths fudge. Herman Melville, commenting on one of his friends, although you might not know it. I could readily see in Ralph Waldo Emerson, notwithstanding his merit, a gaping flaw. It was the insinuation that had he lived in those days when the world was made, he might have offered some valuable suggestions. This one I do agree with. Um, Speaking at the home of the James papers, I probably shouldn't read it. Oscar Wilde. Mr. Henry James writes fiction as if it were a painful duty. Publishers and editors. And I am sorry we don't have any of those poor fellows in, in the room. James M. Barry, author of Peter Pan. Times have changed since a certain author was executed for murdering his publisher. They say that when the author was on the scaffold, he said goodbye to the minister and to the reporters, and then he saw the publishers sitting in the front row below. And to them, he did not say goodbye. He said instead, I'll see you again. Samuel Butler. Editors are like the people who bought and sold in the book of Revelation. There is not one but has the mark of the beast upon him. Thomas Campbell, who gave us now Barabbas, was a publisher. This is at a dinner during the Napoleonic Wars in England. He offered a toast to Napoleon and was shouted down. This was his defense. Gentlemen, I agree with you that Napoleon is a tyrant, a monster, the sworn foe of our nation. But gentlemen... He once shot a publisher. (laughs) Samuel Clemens, who seems to have had a a rather acerbic view of publishing. Take an idiot man from a lunatic asylum, marry him to an idiot woman, and the fourth generation of this connection would be a good publisher from the American point of view. Biography and autobiography as a category. Marjorie Allingham. The main thing to remember in autobiography is not to let any damn modesty creep in to spoil the story. Theodore Lessing. All good books are autobiographies, but bad autobiographies are the worst of all books. And Will Rogers, who's somebody I wouldn't have anticipated finding writing about books. When you put down the good things you ought to have done and leave out the bad things you did, well, that's memoirs. History as a category. This is certainly true. History does not repeat itself. Historians repeat each other. Thomas Hardy, my argument is that war makes rattling good history, but peace is poor reading. Now we move, I assume, up to libraries and librarians. I already gave you Shelby Foote. A university is just a group of buildings gathered around a library. Farley Mowat. Aaron looked at his mate with growing affection and passed the bottle. By God, Angus, he said, for a librarian, you've got quite a brain. Edmund Pearson, who if you like writings about uh, libraries in the early 20th century, is well worth reading. This is a nice look at the way I think the general public sees our profession. This is written in 1908. 
Library work has not yet fully arrived at the recognition which seems desirable. There are plenty of alleged intelligent individuals who are ready to sum up the whole thing in a few pithy words. There are three branches to the work. The head librarian, he sits and reads books. Some of his assistants hand them out over a counter. Then there are the catalogers. Their work is simple. To catalog a book, you take the book, you take a card. You write the name of the book on the card, and there you are. And I fear this is still the way the public sees uh, library work. For this crowd, I like this quote by David Randall, who's uh, dukedom large enough, I would certainly recommend to you. In my 10 years of academic associations, I have found very few graduates of library school who were competent rare bookmen or who could pull their weight with a good bookstore clerk. What it all adds up to is that a proper appreciation of the value of this type of books is an emotional and not an intellectual process. And that can't be taught in schools. But unfortunately, the union badge of graduate school degrees as a prerequisite to a library career is a growing and cancerous thing. This is another one my wife found for me. She also disapproves of it, but again, she found it, so it must be right. This is by Joan Rivers, uh, the popular comedian. If you're good-looking, that's enough. No man ever put his hand up a dress looking for a library card. And now we ascend into the, uh, the upper levels of bibliomania and book collecting. This is by John Adams, written on one of his tours in Europe in the late uh, 18th century. This wandering, itinerating life grows more and more disagreeable to me. I want to see my wife and children every day. I want to see my grass and blossoms and corn, etc., every day. I want to see my workmen. But above all, except the wife and children, I want to see my books. Henry Ward Beecher, who, again, I hadn't thought of as someone who wrote extensively about books, but who apparently in the late 19th century was an avid book collector. How easily one may distinguish a genuine lover of books from the worldly man. With what subdued and yet glowing enthusiasm does he gaze upon the costly front of a thousand embattled volumes. How gently he draws them down as if they were little children. How tenderly he handles them. He peers at the title page, at the text, or at the notes with the nicety of a bird examining a flower. He studies the binding, the leather, Russia, English calf, Morocco, the lettering, the gilding, the edging, the hinge of the cover. He opens it. He shuts it. He holds it off. He brings it nigh. It suffuses his whole body with book magnetism. I even have a quote by Terry Bellinger for you. 1982, how many people, I wonder, do arrange their books according to the color of their bindings for the purpose of decorative appeal or otherwise? I am told that there used to be an outlet in New York City called Books by the Yard, where decorators and others could view books arranged by color and buy them at so much per foot of leather, so much per foot of cloth. Having done some auctioning, I can attest that there are indeed decorators who buy them precisely that basis. They would call me up and say, what do you have in green leather in your auction? Augustine Burrell. This is a, uh, a statement that any true book lover can understand. To be proud of having 2,000 books would be absurd. You might as well be proud of having two top coats. After your first 2,000 volumes, difficulty begins. 
But until you have 10,000 volumes, the less you say about your library, the better. Then you may begin to speak. A.E. Newton, whose books are somewhat dated today, um, worth reading now if you like to read the, the popular predecessors of our generation in terms of a tremendous influence on the collecting of books in this country between 1915 and 1935. The one best and sufficient reason for a man to buy a book is because he thinks he will be happier with it than without it. Vincent Starrett, another author I'd heartily recommend to you. To the incurable book lover, books are the beginning and the end of life. Indeed, they are its meaning, the answer to its riddle. For him, mankind, like ancient Gaul, is divided into three parts. Those who write books, those who read them, and an innumerable company who exist or have existed solely to be written about. We have a category that I think of as errors. Intelligent people saying things that are, that are simply nonsensical. A. E. Hausman, whose poetry is, is wonderful, wrote... Bibliophiles are an idiotic class. Robert Louis Stevenson, whose books I read and enjoyed as a, as a boy. Books are good enough in their own way, but they are a mighty bloodless substitute for life. I think Logan Pearsall Smith, who wrote that books are life, is, is a little closer to the truth here. Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, who proved that transcendentalists are not necessarily infallible, wrote, it is not observed that librarians are wiser men than others. It's ridiculous. Edmund Wilson, a uh, very bright fellow, but certainly wrong here. It is doubtful whether any first-rate man of letters has ever gone in for collecting books except on some special subject in which he might happen to be interested. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a collector of first editions to enter the kingdom of literature. And finally, in this errors category, Benjamin Disraeli. An author who speaks about his own books is almost as bad as a mother who talks about her own children. Having given hundreds of these kinds of talks, I consider that almost libelous. And the final category is basically Graffinino favorites. People have asked me since I've been doing this, what's your favorite quote in all of these? And it's pretty hard for me to, to narrow it down uh, beyond a few. I gave you, I think, Augustine Burrell earlier. A great library easily begets affection, which may deepen into love. Now, see, I think that if you take library out of that and substitute information retrieval center, it doesn't have quite the same ring to it. And to follow that up, I would give you one by Richard Needham, who said recently, I love libraries, but I will be damned if I will ever walk into a resource center. Anatole France, a philosophy that, uh, as a scholar, I can certainly embrace. When a thing has been said and well said, have no scruple. Take it and copy it. Give references? Why should you? Either your readers know where you have taken the passage and the precaution is needless, or they do not know, and you simply humiliate them. <laughs> Samuel Clemens. This is my brother's philosophy without question, my brother the non-reader. Quote, I like a thin book because it will steady a table, a leather volume because it will strop a razor, 
and a heavy book because it can be thrown at a cat. Groucho Marx, which is, these, this is one of the quotes my publisher has used for the outside dust jacket. Outside of a dog, a book is man's best friend. Inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. <laughs> Dorothy Parker. Now, I like this, but I realized in giving it to some of my students that I had needed two footnotes. I think this crowd probably will understand it a little better. I'd rather fail my Wasserman test than read the poems of Edgar Guest. A.S.W. <laughs> Rosenbach, another author you should read if you love books about books, um, and certainly a philosophy that, that uh, the rare book school folks should appreciate. I suppose there are people, I've been told there are intelligent people, who would just as soon have an edition of Keats's poems, for example, well-printed, on good paper, in a handsome modern binding, as a first edition in its original boards. I only hope I shall never meet them. George Bernard Shaw, who actually supplied the title for this collection, wrote, Only in books has mankind known perfect truth, love, and beauty. And people finally say, that's nice, you have a dozen or so that you really like, but we need one. When I've talked to newspaper reporters in particular. One quote. So I, I came up with one. Um, S.J. Adair Fitzgerald, um, late 19th, early 20th century writer, wrote, I think it's short, it's pithy, it's accurate, I have no mistress but my books. Well, my wife heard me saying this and decided that it was time to remind me that uh, I've been married for 20 years, I have no mistresses at all. Find another quote. And being an obedient husband, I, I set out to look. So I found one by Armand Louis Maurice Seguier, uh, early 19th century. If someone wishes to seduce me, he is only to offer me books. No, my wife said, this is not going to do. You wanted to be seduced if you wanted to enjoy yourself. You never should have gotten married. So find another quote. Okay, this one my wife likes. And I like it in, in terms of having a book that's coming out in, uh, in a month or so, so I hope you will remember this. Winston Churchill. It is a good thing for a man to read books of quotations. Thank you. Thank you.